This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Sometimes it's the little things we do that speak most eloquently about how we feel about a situation. Such is the case in Michelle Wright's novel, Small Acts of Defiance. So, Michelle, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. We have as your lead protagonist, Lucy, a young Australian girl who finds herself in occupied Paris. How did she come to be there? Well, Lucy's mother is French, her father is Australian, and after a a family tragedy, um, they find themselves in a, in a very difficult financial situation and have no other choice but to go and live with Lucy's uncle Gérard in Paris, even though this is right at the start of 1940 and um, war has been declared. Uh, it's the phony war, I suppose uh, it was called at the time, so the fighting hasn't actually started, but it's still a very tense time to arrive in Paris. Lucy's father and the tragedy you speak of was brought about from the aftermath of World War One, That's right. So Lucy's father was a World War I veteran and, and like a lot of veterans of the First World War, was a, a very damaged man. Um, he had been uh, fighting on the front lines but also recording his memories of the war in a sketchbook. He was an artist and, and these had you know haunted him for the two decades following the war and when he hears that another war has been declared, uh, it all becomes too much for him to bear. Lucy also has a talent for art and this leads to her first act of defiance under occupation. Tell us about that. So I think you're alluding to the fact that she uses her artistic skills um, to, uh, she participates in a student demonstration or she observes a student demonstration that happens on the 11th of November 1940. So the first uh, Remembrance Day under occupation, where university and high school students decide to defy the orders of the occupying forces and to commemorate Remembrance Day and to demonstrate at the Arc de Triomphe. And uh, her, she helps a student, an injured student, and then goes on to do a, a drawing of this student kind of in the guise of um, liberty leading the people. I don't know if you know that very famous painting by Delacroix of liberty leading the people with the, the bare-breasted woman with the, the French flag yeah. and, um, and gives that. And then little by little, when she presents this drawing to her friend, um, she finds herself drawn into some small acts of defiance that some of the students are participating in by making flyers and, and posting them up around the university and handing them out. But also in the postcard that she... Oh, yes. There are little messages secretly <laughs> put in. That's right. So she gets a job in a, an art supply store drawing some pen and ink um, postcards that are being sold mainly to German soldiers, actually. Um, and in one of the postcards that's not destined to be sold, she uh, draws, uh, I think it's the Arc de Triomphe, and hides a little um profile of de Gaulle in the facade of the um, Arc de Triomphe and a little message in there that you can only see with a, if you use a magnifying glass, but it's her very timid, very first act of defiance, which was already quite a dangerous thing to do. Um, you know, the Germans didn't take those type of um, protests lightly and you could easily be arrested um, for, for doing something like that. But there were other acts of defiance taking place. And what I found interesting was de Gaulle's advice on defiance. He had an interesting way of looking at it. 
Um, the yes. silence. <laughs> he, he referred to silence being important. That's right. And I think one of the very early, he, he was obviously based in London. He had fled to London and was trying to uh, drum up support for um, resistance there, even though the French government, the Vichy government, was officially collaborating with the Germans. And so he would broadcast every night on the BBC and send messages to the French population and that he hoped would, would give them you know, courage and, and um, unite them in their will to, to resist. And one of the first things he asked them to do was on New Year's Day, um, 1941, I think it was, um, he asked them to, to stay inside between, I think, three and four o'clock in the afternoon to 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 stay inside their houses and for the streets of France to be deserted and to, to show the Germans that, you know, despite all the controls they were putting on them, all the, the, the um, constraints and rules, that they still had this ability to be united and to stay inside and to refuse to, to go out. Um, I'm not sure how effective it was, but that was one of the early actions we called on the French population to do. There are other acts of defiance, but... What is intriguing is this notion of living under occupation because France becomes divided. There's the Vichy government under Patan, but also you've encapsulated this in Lucy's uncle Gerard, which mm -hmm. I find interesting because in many ways he's trying to survive but also collaborating. It sort of depicts what was going on in the country in many ways. That's right. I mean, France was a really divided country, both physically and, um, you know, emotionally and in their loyalties. Um, so obviously France was cut in half. There was the occupied zone in the north and most of the west and then the well, so-called free zone in the south that was administered by Vichy. And France was also really divided in its loyalties. Pétain was a World War I veteran, a hero. He was really the grandfather of France. And a large part of the French population had absolute faith in him to, to do the right thing by the French population. Um, so while you had de Gaulle trying to um, drum up support for you know, this continuing the fight, there was another large part of the French population who really felt that it was their duty to follow Pétain's um, advice and you know, to, to spare the French population further hardship by collaborating with the Germans. Um, and as you say, Gérard was one of these people who supported Pétain. He was also trying to survive financially, and that was very difficult, like for a large part of the French population. There was lots of um, restrictions, rationing of food. Um, business is very difficult to go about your business. So Gérard did work in a business where he was able to have contracts, but that meant a certain measure of, of collaborating and cooperating with what the Germans were doing without wanting to give too much away. Um, and there were a lot of people who found themselves in that situation. Uh, so it was it were a really divided country. And that's been really a point of contention in the history ever since the Second World War. Um, people have, have been arguing about whether Pétain was was doing the right thing by the French population in trying to protect them or whether he was actively collaborating with a regime that whose uh, ideals he shared. But Uncle Gerard has a, a noble intent, if I can call it that, survival, protecting his family, protecting yeah. certain traditions. So how much sympathy should we have for Gerard and people like him who did collaborate? 
Well, that's right. I mean, um, there was, as, as you said, with the, the importance of family, and that was something that Pétain really um, insisted on. He changed the, the French motto, the very famous French motto of liberté, égalité, fraternité, and he changed it in the very early days of the occupation to a new motto, um, famille, tra uh, travail, famille, patrie, which is work, family, and um, fatherland. Um, and he really insisted on those very traditional values, which were very ingrained in the French population back then. And so Gérard was not at all exceptional in, in wanting to protect his family, um, to, to be loyal to his leader, to be loyal to uh, the nation. Um, and that's what Pétain really tapped into, that, that sense of loyalty and tradition and, and conservatism. Now, Lucy has a friend, Aileen, a Jewish girl, and so there's that spectre of transportation. But towards the end, Aileen has an opportunity to return with Lucy to Australia, but Aileen declines, and there's a reason for that. Yeah, so Aileen has, uh, was, was deported, but she was one of the few um, French Jews who actually came back from deportation. I think there were 76,000 Jews deported and about 2,000 came back. Um, so her, she knows that her, uh, well, that certain members of her family have, have um, been killed uh, in concentration camps and death camps, but she doesn't have news of certain other members of her family. So that's one aspect of her not wanting to leave the country. She wants to stay there and, and hope that, that these members of her family have survived. But I think the other reason she gives is that um, she has seen her, her country transformed from the land of, of the French Revolution and human rights and you know, freedom and, and equality into something that was unrecognisable for her that she never thought she would see. And she refuses to give up hope that perhaps she has seen the worst of, of what her country, her compatriots have been able to do, but perhaps there is hope that she will see a better side of them and that the country we will rebuild stronger and, and that they'll put all this behind them and, and learn from their mistakes and be a better country. So I think she's reluctant to give up hope and that's why she decides not to go back to Australia with UC when she um, offers that, that escape. Now, there's a moral question underpinning a lot of this towards the end of the novel. Principles mean nothing in the face of barbarity, is what Lucy says. But Aileen replies, it's precisely because we're faced with such acts that we mustn't compromise our principles. But along the way, and I don't want to give too much away, both Lucy and Yvonne become compromised. So is it ever possible to retain your principles completely? Well, I think that's one of the big questions of the novel. At least that's what I hope readers might take away from it. And it's very easy for us in hindsight. We know what had been going on during the Specmore War, whereas a lot of the population didn't know what was happening um, to the Jews, for example. Um, and so it's very easy for us to say, you know, yes, we should have, they should have acted this way or that way. They should have compromised their principles. They should have used more violent means to, to resist, um, because as, as the novel is called Small Acts of Defiance, a lot of what Lucy undertakes are, are not heroic, violent resistance um, activities. That She doesn't blow up trains and plant bombs and things like that. They are much more symbolic acts of defiance. And there is that tension between Aline and Lucy about whether that's enough, you know, when you are faced with that bar bar barbarity. Um, I think at one stage, 
Aline says, objects to Lucy using her artistic skills to make flyers, saying, look, when you know, the pen isn't mightier than the sword, when the sword is a, a machine gun or a panzer tank, you know, that no longer holds true. Um, and so I think that's one of the big tensions. You know, is, it, is it ever enough when you're faced with overwhelming violence and barbarity to compromise your principles of, of nonviolence and respond with the same type of violence? And um, it's easy for us in hindsight perhaps to, to judge how people should have reacted to what they saw going on around them. But um, that there's always that big question, are you just sinking to the level of your enemies when you adopt the same tactics that, that they're using? Um, so I don't think there's a, an easy answer to that, and I, but I hope that that's something that people will think about while they're reading the novel. Well, in order to think about it, in order to face that question themselves, the readers and listeners need to read Small Acts of Defiance, by Michelle Wright, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Michelle, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you very much, David. Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. Who doesn't like a good crime novel? And this one is a ripper. Welcome, Simon Rao. Thank you very much for having me. Now, we're used to police working with partners. You've got Detective Sergeant Zoe Mayer and her sidekick, Harry. Why doesn't Harry quite fit into the mould of good cop, bad cop? Well, Harry's got four legs. <laughs> <laughs> Harry's, a, Harry's a, uh, a golden retriever. He's a service dog. And he's come back to work with Zoe. Zoe's come back from four months of uh, medical leave after suffering from PTSD. And she's come back with a a service dog by her side. So now she's got a human partner called Charlie and a, a, and a canine partner called Harry. This enforced four months leave, the way you've given the reader understanding of this is just as profound as the climax action at the end of the book. Plotting, even writing this first novel, must have taken many, many drafts to get it so right. Uh, yes, uh, it was probably about 15 drafts in total. The, uh, you know, the first draft was probably fairly average and it slowly worked its way up. But no, I went over it to at least 15 drafts. There's, got, there's some complexity in it. It's not, a, it's not an overly long book, even though the book is called The Long Game. It's, not a, it's only a 300-page book. But it, there's a lot of twists and turns in it. And there's a lot of backstory with Zoe, which sort of gets explained through the book. The reason why when she comes back to work and some people sort of venerate her and some people revile her is sort of explained through the book. Well, you mentioned Zoe's human partner is Charlie Shaw. Quote, at six foot two, Charlie had a good four inches on Zoe and was lean with close cropped blonde hair. He was poster boy looks, but he does have a problem working in homicide. What's that? He has a great fear of dead bodies. Which... <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit of a problem. He tends to go a little bit pale and tries to avoid everything. But no, he's a, he's a good uh, sidekick for Zoe. He cares about his partner. He wants to do well, but he's come from organised crime and he's come across the homicide and he's still finding his feet. And when uh, Zoe comes back to work, he's only actually been there in homicide for six months himself. So he's still fairly raw. Zoe jumps straight in to a homicide and we're not giving anything away here. This happens very, very early on. So what's the case? So the case is a uh, fatal, it's a stabbing in Portsea down at the far end of the Mornington Peninsula, uh, a local guy. So Ray Carson's been murdered. 
and Zoe and Charlie and Harry uh, go to investigate the case. Soon enough, they find a suspect and he's arrested and charged. There's overwhelming evidence uh, about his guilt, but then something else happens. Yes. This Dwayne Harley, he's... He seems to be the suspect right along because Ray Carlson's got an, a very expensive bachelor pad. He's paying exorbitant maintenance to his ex-wife and he's yes. also having a bit of a fling with Dwayne's wife. Now, all of this yeah. on a very limited income, so we know things are suspicious, but yes. they become even more suspicious because there's so much bleach smell removing all fingerprints and then mm. Wayne's got a very obvious piece of evidence, Ray's blood soaked in a piece of his clothing. This is where I would like to ask Simon Rowell to read the very first chapter of The Long Game because we start to think maybe it's not quite Dwayne. He sat high in the car, high above Portsea Back Beach, near the very tip of the Mornington Peninsula, watching the waves rolling in off Bass Strait, a single bead of sweat on his temple. His was the only car at this end of the car park. Behind him were scrubby dunes and before him an endless stretch of ocean. The summer sun now high in the sky blanched the scene like a faded Polaroid. He held a large knife loosely, bouncing it gently in his right hand, happy with its weight. He turned it to and fro, glinting the sun's rays off its silver edge. Twelve inches long, the knife had a series of black dots on its handle, making it easier to grip. Yes, so we have a feeling that it might have been pretty much planned, this thing. Yeah. Look, the story set around the beachside suburbs of Melbourne and after the news breaks about this case, Sarah Westbrook made contact with Zoe with another angle. Why was mm. Sarah interested? Sarah had been to school with another person who'd been charged with murder and a different crime. And she'd come to Zoe uh, a little bit desperate because she'd spoken to her old school friend in uh, remand. And he'd told her about another case, which was very, very similar to his case. So a third case in which they sound almost identical. And they both claimed to be innocent and been set up. And Sarah wanted Zoe to check it out for her. Detective Ian Gillies not only isn't happy about Zoe's return, he's got a personal problem with her, but there's also the professional problem. Why doesn't he want Zoe to follow anything up? He doesn't want uh, anyone following up because he's completed his investigation. He thinks he's found the right person for the crime uh, and had them charged and so forth. And he, he basically thinks that Zoe, because of the PTSD, is really not fit for work and it's not, not up to the job anymore and wants her to lay right off. So he's, um, you know, an imposing presence physically and is quite aggressive towards her in the workplace. He's got a policing partner in Gary Burns. This is where Simon Rowell has really, he can write the dialogue that makes us reflect as a reader on a character, whether we like him or not. And this is a conversation between Gary and Ian. Can you read from page 201, please, Simon? So Zoe's in the, in the car park and she's walking towards the lifts at this stage. And just when she's about 20 metres away, the, the elevator doors open and this is where it starts. Ian Gillies and Gary Burns strode out with Gary in mid-sentence. Quote, and we've been going out for a few months and I started to notice in this, this dark regrowth, you know, on her pussy. And I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, my wax is away. I thought she was a natural blonde, but apparently not. 
then yesterday her eyes were hazel, not blue. So apparently she's been wearing coloured contacts this whole time. I thought I had this blue-eyed blonde, but I've got this hazel-eyed brunette. I'm feeling fucking ripped off right now. Imagine, thought Zoe, how she'll feel if she ever meets the real you. The real you. You've given a lot of snappy little descriptions of people. Hmm. Here's another one, a quote from the book. Donna was wearing a loose white shirt, half buttoned up and linen shorts. Zoe could see her thin pink lace bra through the gap in her shirt and noticed that her lip gloss was slightly smudged. And another character. An unshaven man with scruffy brown hair came out of the front door. He walked towards them with his shoulders hunched back, which pushed out his belly. His head was tilted to the left. You've also told us something that I never knew about disguise, and that was about ears. That's interesting. Mm, Where did you read up on that? A forensics book I read a number of years ago about when you're comparing photographs or images of people and, you know, the one thing you can't change is your ears very easily. So you can, if you're looking up and looking down, you can puff your cheeks out or put, put you know, pull your head down to make your chin look uh, different. And yeah. yeah, but your ears are really, you can't do a lot about that. Yeah. Within this book, the uh, character tends to change his hairdo to even counter that. So. Another snappy little description. Young man on his stomach on the grass being handcuffed. He was wearing a white T-shirt, faded denim jeans that were slung low on his hips with his underwear pulled high and new sneakers. His build was slim, but the veins in his arms indicated that he worked out. Simon, did you build these rather stereotypical descriptions to deflect what was the real you? I've been asked about, you know, why, why I wrote the book with a, a female lead instead of a more traditional sort of male lead. And I think the, the advantage in writing different characters, in this case, you know, me writing about a female character, is it allows me to uh, sort of feel free and objective in a way because mm-hmm. um, I don't really have to get hung up on people thinking I'm writing about myself. I've read books in the last 10 or so years. I mean, one about something about a code in Da Vinci where you read it and suspect that the author might be describing himself when he's describing his main, his main character. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of get right away from that. So in terms of, you know, most of these, uh, or all of these people, really, it's really a long way away from me. We mentioned earlier on the personal annoyance between Ian Gillies and Zoe in the workplace, mm. but she also has a personal relationship problem. Going back to doing law at university, who were Tom and Sally? Oh, so Tom has her now boyfriend, Sally's Crown Prosecutor. Tom and Sally were at law school together. Zoe was at the university with them and they were part of a fairly tight-knit group and Sally and Tom were boyfriend and girlfriend back in university for a time. And then Zoe and Sally had a falling back years before about, about some alarm, some rumours about, about Sally, which turned out to be true rumours, which caused a bit of a rift because uh, Sally then decided that Zoe had invented the rumours or spread them or both and that caused a big rift so now that Sally is a, a crown prosecutor and, and Zoe is a homicide detective it's sort of a rich pickings now because the, the feeling bad feelings from Sally have not gone away. Absolutely a good detective needs good supports there's a detective inspector Rob Loretti who trusts and admires Zoe's instincts there's Hannah Nugent and Angus Batch ready to back her up and do the secondary hack work. And there's Anjalia Ara. What are her skill sets? She's like a technical services person within homicide, like a data analyst uh, who works in there to actually 
uh, do a lot of the background work for the de- detectives. And Jali's an Indian, Indian-Australian lady who's very, very highly skilled. And she's got a bit of a backstory too, which comes right into place towards the end of the book. And Jali's parents were really impressed that she was working with Zoe because Zoe has hero status for some people in what she mm. did that caused the PTSD. Yes. Uh, so we have a good team together. Do you think they're going to do another investigation, Simon Rowe? Well, they are. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm in the middle of, middle of writing book two at the moment. Uh, my publishers, text, uh, text Publishing, and they commissioned the second book about a month before the first book came out, which was... Very, very gratifying. So I'm working on that right at the moment. That's another book. This one's set up in the Chuka Moama, that sort of area on the border between New South Wales and Victoria. And I'm also starting to sort of think about the plot of the third book, which is uh, going to be set around Ballarat and the Goldfields. A bit of a holiday treat for readers. They can, they can travel around with me as they read the books. <laughs> That's fantastic. Murder can be opportunistic or professionally planned. Simon Rowell has Detective Sergeant Zoe Mayer investigating against time in the long game. Thank you, Simon. Thank you. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.